In this podcast episode, we want to introduce you to our BCEN friend, Major Tiffany Welsh. Come along as Michael Dexter and Holly Briggs talk with Major Welsh about her career in nursing, from joining the U.S. Air Force Nursing Corps, Critical Care Transport, and Biocontainment. Thanks for joining us as we take this conversation up in the air and into the heart of military nursing. This episode is called Impacting Lives Around the World Through Military Transport. Hello, and welcome to the BCN and Friends podcast, where we hold interesting conversations about learning with a range of thought leaders, BCN certification holders, and industry professionals, but most importantly, to create value and insight for you, our professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. We hope you find our discussions interesting, informative, sometimes funny, sometimes serious, but always valuable. I'm Holly Briggs, a professional development specialist at BCN and one of your hosts for today. I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Dexter, Director of Professional Development at BCN. Hi, Michael. Hey, Holly. In this episode of BCN and Friends, we have Major Tiffany Welsh. We are honored to have her on our podcast. And before we begin, I want to say thank you, Major Welsh, for your service to our country, for your sacrifice and the work that you do. We thank you. Michael, could you please introduce us to our BCN and Friend? Major Welsh. Yeah, I would be happy to do that. Tiffany Welsh is a registered nurse in the United States Air Force Nurse Corps. She began her primary nursing practice in emergency and trauma nursing uh, about 18 years ago. She's been on active duty for 10 years, and since coming on active duty, Major Welsh has served as a trauma nurse in military treatment facilities, as well as become a member of the critical care air transport teams. She has three deployments and is currently a deputy director, as well as holds a teaching role at the Center for Sustainment of Trauma and Readiness Skills in Omaha, Nebraska, specializing in the principles of biocontainment care. So Major Welsh, welcome to the BCN and Friends podcast. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. And before before we get into some of the questions I have for you and a lot of that conversation, just wanted to go back to your healthcare career and find out um, when you were younger, is this what you planned your life around? Is this what you wanted to do? No, not a, not a bit. No, um, I wasn't even going to become a nurse. I was actually, when I was in college, I was looking at it becoming a forensic geneticist uh, before like CSI and all that were cool. My dream job was actually helping to identify the remains of veterans lost in World War II in the Pacific and to repatriate their remains. That was actually my dream job. But then I got married uh, at 18 and I could not afford the college I was at. And so I became a nurse. <laughs> a very so, weird circuit to where I am. Oh, that's, that's actually, I, I think the <laughs> whole, I think the whole realm of like forensic genetics, genetic genealogy, like there's so yeah. much cool stuff in that whole realm, but what prompted you to um, join the military and become active duty? I actually took care of my recruiter's child and I went, I was a nurse over at uh, St. Louis Children's Hospital. And um, apparently I took care of them so well, the son really liked me and told his dad about me. And so then his dad called to thank me <laughs> and I'd never been called by a parent and been thanked. And so he asked if I'd ever thought of uh, joining the military and I didn't actually know the Air Force had a nurse corps at that time. I knew the army had nurses. Um, I did not know the Air Force had nurses. And so I said, sure. <laughs> and he had it very well organized, very well laid out, costs the pros and cons, benefits, what I could expect to earn, cost of living, the whole military lifestyle and everything like that. And it was really good opportunity. I'm like, why the heck not? 
and here I am going on 11 years. That's great. Well, thank you for sharing that with us and um, interested to know a lot more about that, but I wanted to turn it over to Holly to ask a few questions before I dive into some, some of those. Quite a journey you have that got you to where you are. You teach a course on the principles of biocontainment, which that sounds like a lot to unpack just right there. For our audience, um, what are some key principles that nurses everywhere should consider with biopreparedness? So with biopreparedness, it goes back to a lot of the basics and enhancing your understanding of the basics, the fundamentals of infection control principles that a lot of us in ER and trauma do not get. We don't usually get the hands-on training that goes into like how to don and doff PPE to that level properly. We in ER and trauma, we're just told, you know, put this on. We're not actually told that there is a actual step-by-step process on how to do it and how to protect yourself from not contaminating yourself. Whenever we get a trauma patient, we don our PPE, and after it's done, we just rip it off, toss it off without really thinking much about how we're removing the garments and how much we're maybe lofting particles that we could actually inhale. You really have to slow down what you're doing, which is not intuitive to a trauma nurse at all when we're told we have to move the meat in the ERs. Um, it's very cerebral. You have to know where your body is in space and time pretty much constantly. What are you brushing up against? What is the risk of you brushing up against that? What is the risk of, oh, now I can see like a different color of glove down underneath one of my layers. What does that mean? So it's, it's a lot to go through. And it was very, very, it's very enlightening to be where I am now. I'm much more of a germaphobe. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I, I will say that, you know, during uh, the last few years, um, I think the idea of donning and doffing, being more aware of what we're doing as far as within the, the realm of infectious disease. I think it was really highlighted in the last few years. And I definitely agree with you that that is not something intuitively as an ER nurse that I even really considered. Mm-hmm. It was just the patient needs and we go. And unfortunately, yeah. I, I know several colleagues who got sick, you know, during yes. the pandemic because- we just went in, you know, and I'm glad to say that, you know, most of them recovered really well and, you know, did well, but when you take it outside of COVID and you, and you bring in other elements that obviously have much more impact to health, you know, if you are, if you are exposed, then it really does, it brings in that, that new level. So I definitely understand why you're, why you have, why you're a germaphobe. I completely get it. The more, you know, right. Right. And I mean, we're, we're talking COVID that has, you know, pretty low mortality rate, even Mm -hmm. though, you know, globally, yes, one to 2%, that's actually a lot of people. But when you're dealing with more of the pathogens that we focus on in the biocontainment care of like viral hemorrhagic fevers, Ebola, Marburg, Lassa fevers, their mortality rates can start at 40. And it's extremely terrifying to think of taking care of somebody like that. And the bullets that we dodged with COVID, if it was something, if it was something worse, it we, we it would be a very weird world to live in. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. Yeah, we 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 see like all of all of the work that you've done in that with biocontainment and and obviously that's like a whole topic we could talk about this entire podcast. It, it is. <laughs> but 
Um, and, and there's a lot going on. It's a very dynamic uh, field as well. But one of the other things that's changing a lot, or at least has changed a lot in the last 10 years with companies like SpaceX and different things is there's so much more focus on aerospace and space travel and, and these type of things. And you teach at a school of aerospace medicine. So as on a, you know, and I know there's different, there's different really? fields. <laughs> Not really. No. Well, I actually have that written down, what we are to the aerospace. So we, so the Center for Sustainment of Trauma and Readiness Skills, it's C-STARS for short. If you just want to say C-STARS, that's a lot easier. Um, it's organizationally within the uh, Air Force Research Lab's 7-11th Human Performance Wing, U.S. School, U.S. Air Force School of Aerospace Medicine. <laughs> that's what it, that all means. We're a geographically separated unit. Mm -hmm. uh, and we specialize in that. So we're just an offshoot of them. So well, well going to, I guess then going to like your, your CCAT training and things, mm -hmm. I just as, as a basic level, doesn't have to be anything in depth, but as a basic level, aerodynamics, the impact of flight or transport on patients and transport nurses and these things, because there's a lot of EDs around the nation that each and every day they transport patients out mm -hmm. to other higher levels of care. And, and a lot of patients are transported by air. Um, mm -hmm. And so we could talk about something as crazy as sending a, a, a person to Mars, but, but bringing it back down to a more universal scale, just the focus of, of body dynamics, aerodynamics on patients and crew members. Can you talk to us a little bit about what it's like to be transporting long distances over a long period of time in the air, because I know that's hard on your body and I'm, and, and definitely yeah. on patients' bodies. doesn't say it. Yeah. It, it depends on what you're flying on, um, what the patient's condition is, how many patients do you have? St the stressors of flight, the higher up you go, become more pronounced. And in the, mil the military flies in cargo aircraft. We don't fly in the nice little airline, the commercial airline industry planes, ours are very stripped down. Um, the air is very dry. It can be very cold. Um, turbulence is an issue. Our lights, uh, depending on what we're flying over into and around, we might not be able to have cabin lights on. So you're flying in low light conditions. Uh, the noise in our airplanes is pretty, it's pretty loud. Um, so you're having to wear ear protection. Um, you have to put your protection in the patients. So actually communicating can be challenging because you can't really necessarily hear one another. Then you have to like pull your ear set, ear piece off to hear the patient yell at you while you yell back at the patient. Um, like I said, the air is so dry. Everybody's dehydrated. Um, the flights can be days long. Um, the longest one I have ever done was I flew from um, the Philippines back to um, California, and that was a very long flight. We actually had to land in Hawaii to swap out uh, crew members to take off again. So I had like two Wednesdays and a Saturday to my life. I don't know what happened to the days in between because international datelines were involved, and I have no clue. And I just know I had two sunrises and three sunsets. It was very bizarre. <laughs> Um, I'd be curious to know what your page, your charting looked like there too it, for the dates. So we we all chart in, in thankfully we chart in Zulu time, so that made sense and Julian dates. But like telling people like I left on a Wednesday and I was back on a Thursday, it was bizarre. It was just out of this world weird. Whereas like with um, civilian sector, we do more like helicopter transports. Um, yes, there is fixed wing uh, transports as well, but they're usually 
not as uncomfortable as military cargo planes. Because <laughs> we're CCAT, I lovingly call us the hitchhikers of critical care in the uh, era of medical evacuation system. We don't care what it is. If, as long as they got space for us, we will make it work. Okay, so taking that conversation then and, <laughs> and talking about all of the the logistics of just moving somebody halfway around the world. I don't even know if the Philippines is, it, I don't think that is halfway around the world, maybe a third of the way around the world from the Philippines to California. Yep. Um, going way. from, yeah, it, it is a very long way, but going from that and then again, thinking of like the expansion, what do we do next? Mm-hmm. Where do we go next? I just can't imagine a flight that would be a critical care patient from some space type platform back down to earth and the dynamics there and those things has there been any increased focus that you're aware of on those the the physical physiologic changes of the human body in space so i know there is a subset of medicine that is focused on space care and the care of astronauts i know they exist they're usually with nasa Um, I do actually have a friend who is a physical therapist who is at NASA. She's uh, in the Air Force. That's her job right now. Um, I could not even begin to understand what she does. It's, It's really different. There's like you imagine what happens when you go up to, you know, cruise altitude in a commercial airliner. I mean, that's nothing compared to what she's taking care of. And I mean, they're up there for, you know, however long there's there's a whole different subspecialty around it. It's like, she tried talking yeah. to me about it. I'm like, I have no idea what you just said to me, girl, but that sounds fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Fa- and just the way, the way that the human body can adapt is so interesting, but then also just the pressure. And, and like you mentioned, the, the, the changes that happen, not only with atmospheric pressure, yeah. with the differentials and the, um, the oxygen concentration at these levels and mm. things. There's so many different things, but going back, let's go back down to earth again. Um, some of these, these flights that the military is doing, um, and, and these long distance air train, it's not even just the military, there's private mm-hmm. companies doing these very, very long distance flights. It's, it can definitely be, um, impactful on patients and, and the crew members and things. So how do you, how do you stay safe and how do you, uh, ensure that, that you're not getting overwhelmed on some of these long distance things that you're doing? So when we fly with our critical care air transport teams, we're a pretty tight unit. There's a lot of cross-training that goes on. Um, A lot of what we do, it's pretty much um, standard order sets. We're just continuing the patient or improving them from what they had before to their next destination. Um, Unless you're doing more of like getting somebody who just had like damage control surgery. Um, and then you're just kind of having them for a smaller amount of time. We make sure each other has, you know, slept well the night before. Um, I just taking care of your basic health concerns, making sure you're hydrated, making sure you bring food on the flight. Cause the military aircraft, we don't usually have food like with us we'll feed the patients but the crew members you have to remember to bring something and you can't bring junk you have to actually eat kind of healthy um we love our coffee (laughs) so if we get a little tired we do take an energy shot or um, a lot of the flights um when we originate from like germany or someplace we'll actually take off in the afternoon and we'll just kind of let the patients sleep so when we are landing over on the east coast it's usually in the nighttime um, we'll drop the patient off and just kind of reset ourselves to get on more of a, you know, circadian rhythm again, force ourselves to sleep and just resume a normal day the next day if we can. 
So yeah, well, so we, st we, st we strategically kind of nap. If, if the patients are all stable, all, all sleeping, everything's been taken care of, I'll tell my doc, hey doc, this is what's going on with this patient here and here. I'm gonna sleep for you know, 15, 20 minutes. And they're usually like, that's okay. And we'll just, everybody will take turns. Or if you're really lucky and the uh, AE crew that you're flying with has a bunch of ICU nurses on it too, they will gladly come over and kind of like just watch things, make sure an alarm doesn't go off. And if it does kind of wake you up and let you know, or let the doctor know that way you can grab a little bit of a cat nap and we return the favor. If they've got a really large complement of patients, we'll kind of help them around on their patients once in a while. Thank you for sharing that with me. I just, um, I know it's just so difficult. Sometimes all these back and forth crossing through different time zones and things can be so difficult in these long distance yeah. flights. Uh, and, and again, then, then when I go beyond that, these with flights potentially into space realms, I just think it, it could be so hard on a medical crew. I yeah. know it is, you know, I know it is day to day currently. So mm -hmm. um, anyways, thank you for sharing that. I would say, Tiffany, it sounds like the key to all of this is just a lot of teamwork between not only the team that you're with, but then also just the team that you can be traveling with and, yeah. you know, work it out and you cover each other and make sure that the patients get what they need, but then also, you know, taking care of one another. And I, I think that that is a universal, hopefully a universal truth amongst healthcare is that we have each other's back. We, we have the patients, we're going to help each other out and, and get what needs to be done and, and hopefully end of the day, we all get to go home, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it, even in, for us, it even includes the front end crew, the pilots, co-pilots, mm -hmm. navigators. Um, if they, we have a cabin altitude restriction, they'll even ask us, you know, what is your patient like? Do we need a cabin altitude restriction? We tell them, yes. Okay. No problem. They'll adjust the, they'll adjust all of that. Um, they, I've actually had pilots help load a plane. They've actually helped carry patients onto the aircraft, which we, that blew, that blew us away. They, they did a little bit better of a job than I've seen some medics do because they were so scared of <laughs> dropping the patient that they took their sweet time. And it was like, man, you guys are actually really smooth. <laughs> You're like our patients. Uh, was, thank you for your, oh, they, they willingness love to serve. <laughs> so. Yeah. So what's fun about the front end crews is that pilots, if they know they're flying a medical mission, a lot of them, they like that far more than any other mission. Yeah, they like to come back, see who they're flying home and just kind of shoot the poop with them and trade war stories at, you know, 30,000 feet. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it gives them a, a lot of satisfaction to know they're bringing yeah. somebody, you know, home or getting them to their next place so that they can get, you know, the help that they need or get their yeah. health improved. So I'm sure that uh, it's yeah, I've just seen like them. I've seen them swap patches. They get all misty with one another. It's, re it's really touching, actually, mm -hmm. to see them get all misty. Ugh, I, I, I love that. And I'm, I'm glad that, you know, one, you're able to be a part of it from the role that you play, but then also to see the interaction, you know, amongst colleagues who are, who are serving and doing their duty. And, but you can just tell like it, it means something to them. So yeah, it's really, it's really special. Okay. I am going to ask you why would it be important to be a lifelong learner? And honestly, when I'm asking you this question, I'm like, she does biocontainment. She knows some stuff about aerospace. I mean, I don't know how much more you can fit in that brain of yours, but oh, I, I have forgotten far more than I have learned. <laughs> I am sure. Um, so it's, it's important because if I was the same trauma nurse 
now that I was in 2005, I am sure that some patients I would have taken care of now would have had poor outcomes because of some of the stuff we did in 2005, thinking that it was smart in trauma care to do, not realizing that it actually does not do a darn thing to help your patient. It actually can cause more harm. So just keeping up with the times like um, in, you know, in trauma llama land, what I call it, our practice takes a little bit longer to change because it takes usually bigger events causing a lot more harm to see, you know, how this practice, whatever you're doing impacts the patient long-term. Biocontainment care, as people can remember, I'm sure with great bliss, was changing almost hourly. So the policies and procedures that you were doing last night are different the next day. So you had to learn why did they change. And there was not a lot of time to take all of that in. So if you were not a lifelong learner, not interested in learning, keeping your education current, it was probably very, very challenging. Whereas we're used to being very flexible. So having all those changes occur, yes, was frustrating, but we could kind of cope with it a little bit better. Well, I, I remember when I was working EMS before I was a nurse and I got in trouble one day because I didn't put a patient on a long spine board that was involved mm-hmm. in a car accident. She was uh, in her third trimester of pregnancy and she was not going to be comfortable laying oh. flat like that. And she was very minor accident, like very minor damage. Mm-hmm. She was ambulatory <laughs> on scene, but they were so upset. Every patient needs to be on a long spine board, yeah. seat collar, head blocks. And it, it's just funny to see how it's changed, you know, yeah. over the years. And, and, and now we barely, we barely use them. I don't even teach spine boards anymore. It's to help get the patient up off the ground and then put them onto a mattress because their skin breaks down so fast. Um, I mean, I remember being a new grad working in an ER and giving somebody three liters of of crystalloids before we would ever give them blood for a massive trauma. It's like, oh, I cannot imagine the harm we did for those poor patients. Yeah. And just n- without any, like, not, not meaning to, it's just inadvertently that and tourniquets, tourniquets are a huge thing that the military champions, we use tourniquets very, very quickly. And the civilian sector, I can remember tourniquets were a massive no-no. We never put tourniquets on anything. And it was only about 20, between 2011 and 2013 during the surge in Afghanistan is when tourniquets made a, a just an absolutely amazing comeback. And now we yeah. teach them very, very quickly. You slap a tourniquet on anything. Yeah. And they will, the, they will save your life. Maybe a little too quickly. In some cases I've seen, I I've seen some people, it's like, they just can't wait to put the tourniquet on whatever comes <laughs> I'm like, just, yeah. just clean it yeah. off and look first. I mean, yeah. if it's not actively bleeding or squirting blood, you, you can hold pressure. Yeah. That's still a thing too. In but. combat, we will slap a tourniquet on it. And before we do anything else, we don't even, we don't look, you slap a tourniquet and go because you need your hands. We don't have the yeah. time or luxury to hold pressure. I had one that was like an oozing varicose vein and I come in and somebody put a tourniquet on the leg and I'm like, I I think we could have handled this a little differently. (laughs) But anyways, you mentioned this patient whose father had called you and and that really changed the course of what you were doing. You went into the military from there. And I don't know if that's the answer to this question, but we do like to ask people, is there a person or a moment that impacted your career or impacted you in a particular way um, as a nurse? Um, it's not a patient necessarily. It's kind of a, an amalgamation of patients is seeing my patients that I transported, uh, from Afghanistan 
yeah, seeing them get back with their families, um, seeing them reunited when their families didn't know how they were doing. Um, the last thing they knew, they were on a plane from Germany, and that was the last thing they heard. And they, you know, maybe got delayed or whatever, and they were finally home. Yeah, I bet that is a, but that is an awesome feeling. I, I'm really, yeah. really glad that you're a part of that. That's, yeah, that's and then really there great. is there was another guy I saw actually. Uh, I was not in CCAT at this time. Uh, he was a guy I took care of uh, over at um, Bagram Airfield, and he was uh, going through rehab in San Antonio, and he came in on his Segway that they were using to get his uh, sense of balance back, and he was just zipping through the uh, San Antonio, well, it was at that time, the San Antonio Military Medical Center, it's called BAMC again, um, but he was so excited because he recognized me. I didn't recognize him. And he's, he was wanting to show me how well he was doing. So that was really fun. Yeah. That's and awesome. I've met, I've met other people that I was uh, with at Bagram that like, this is a really wild off topic one. Um, my insurance agent actually here in Omaha for my homeowner's insurance was a helicopter pilot that was with me in Afghanistan. I took care of his co-pilot who actually had a medical emergency. And the only reason why he remembered me is that I held his hand and walked him to the ICU. Wow. Because he couldn't find his co-pilot. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, but I actually have a picture of me in his helicopter because he was a Chinook pilot. Man, I like just hearing you talk about these different impactful moments and just how, you know, it still elicits such a strong response, such strong emotion. It just reminds me that a majority of the things that impact us as professionals really have to do with those human moments that we have with our patients. And, you know, sometimes it's not, Hey, you did this, you hung this medicine so fast and you came up with this answer to this algorithm so quickly. And you, you know, calculated a drip rate and you were so smart. It's really sometimes just those little moments that connect one human with another human and get them from where they are to get them close to home. You know, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the part that we remember. And honestly, that's the part that our patients usually remember the most is the, the human connection that you were able to make. And I think that it's awesome that you're able to do that for so many of your colleagues, your coworkers, you know, those who are in the military that you serve. And I think that, you know, we definitely appreciate everything that you do. It sounds like You've heard back from some of them, but I'm sure there's a whole lot more who wish they could just, you know, give you a thanks. So I'll take up their part and I will say thank you very much. I am going to shift our questions a little sure. bit. Um, we're going to go to a few rapid fire questions and they're just kind of your favorites. Um, so we can get to know you just a little bit better. So if you were not in your current role, so if you were not you know, nurse, trauma, CCAD, biocontainment, aerospace, I mean, all of the things, all, all these things, what would you do? If I was still in the military? Um, well, I mean, you, you can be. I mean, I'm, I'm giving you free reign here. This is um, like, if you could do anything that you even thought you might want to do in life, what would it be? It'd be a classic car mechanic. <laughs> Stop it. I'd, okay. re I'd, re I'd rebuild classic Volkswagens or muscle cars because I'm a car nerd. <laughs> I was going to actually ask you because people who say that, you know, that they're into classic cars, they usually have like 
a type of vehicle that they're into, like either like, you know, like, hey, I like, you know, Mustangs or hey, I like this particular, you know, they, they usually have like a brand that they're like down with. So Volkswagens. Okay. Volkswagen, classic Beetles, classic Volkswagens. They have like a very standardized way of they were built. There's mm-hmm. 13 millimeter socket wrenches because <laughs> I used to own a couple of them um, and they're very easy to work on. Um, otherwise, a probably a 1969, uh, 1970 Mustang Mach 1. Nice. Okay. I mean, the fact that you're able to... The fact that you're able to spit out all of that stuff, I actually feel really good <laughs> that if ever I come into a classic car, I might look you up and see if you I, just, you know. Yeah, I, I get really dorky at car shows. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I have some other categories that we would like to know about, and that is um, just a few favorites. So what is your favorite book? Now, this can be like of all time, you know, that you would recommend, or it can be something that you're reading now that you really um, like. Destiny of the Republic by Candace Millard. It is the life and death of President uh, James Garfield and how the medical practice at that time killed him. It was not the bullet that really killed him. And it's just, it goes really deep into, believe it or not, infection control principles and how, wow, <laughs> just <laughs> things that they thought was, was how you treated it and how it actually killed a president. That is, that's awesome. I'm going to put that on my, it was, put that on the list. my father actually, um, got that book for me and cause he thought like it and I, it was just awesome. That or, um, the book stiff by, I think it's Mary Roach. Those are two of my favorites. Uh, that book is the curious life of the human cadaver. <laughs> it's very morbid, but basically it's when people donate the science, what does that actually mean? And, very interesting. Hmm. Okay. You have given me two things to add to my book list, which I always, I always appreciate that. Yeah. I'm always looking to add to my list. So, um, all right. Favorite movie again, it can be all time or just one that you've seen recently. The unextended Lord of the Rings trilogy. <laughs> Do it. Okay. Okay. Not, not the extended cuts. The extended cuts have way too many longing, like looks they're they're just so long with pregnant pauses it's like uh just shut up <laughs> get to the point please cut this out oh, if I have like nine to plus hours then I'm gonna be yeah like, yeah if you've got <laughs> nothing to do but grow roots then yeah you watch all three extended edition Lord of the Rings trilogy and not the Hobbit don't get the Hobbit involved good oh. lord that's like you have a week of nothing to do then you can get the Hobbit involved I must say that I actually seen all of them um, because I found the books like really interesting. So, yep, I'm I'm with you though. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, favorite song again? It can be like currently what you're jamming out to, or what you favorite classic. I don't have a favorite song. I have favorite like singers and groups. Yeah, yeah. Um, I rediscovered Joss uh, Joss Stone. Uh, she's an she's an R and B singer kind of. I like Lizzo. I like Shine Down. I uh, love Britney Spears and Nickelback. <laughs> I know I love- people are gonna judge the Nickelback, but I love them. I think they're great. <laughs> you know what? They are. They were. They were a staple for many years mm-hmm. um, yep. on the Billboard. So don't yep. hate on them too much. They. I I hear they're great in concert. Um, I've seen Shine Down five like four or five times in concert and they just get better. That's awesome. Mm, so. I like a band that, that can still do that, you know, 
Yeah, they're actually can be better in person than they are on an album, which that was that was shocked me. That's not something you can say of every artist no. out there. So there you have it. Um, okay. What is your comfort food or meal that you really enjoy? Anything with venison or moose. Okay. Uh, it's delicious. <laughs> uh, okay. Or wild, wild game in general. I would love to be more adventurous, but I also know that like my palate is... I mean, I'm, I'm really good with like land creatures that are domesticated. <laughs> um, so, you know, an occasional cow here and there, but yeah. um, I'm, yeah. I'm lucky that I don't know what, when people say it tastes gamey to them, I have no idea what that flavor even is. Cause I've never had a gamey anything because growing up in backwoods, Missouri, you ate whatever critter that could be shot. And so I just, I grew up around it. So I, I think it's all delicious. <laughs> well, it sounds like your taste buds are just, they're more evolved. You know, you started, <laughs> you started with the game young. So it's like, no, that's just, that's just regular food. So yeah. Awesome. Well, do you have any other hobbies or interests outside of those that you mentioned to us already? I'm renovating my house. <laughs> I am uh, still working on my kitchen. I'm refinishing all the cabinets. I've have to redo some flooring. I'm remodeling my bathroom. I still have to hang up my new mirrors and stuff like that. I got a fixer upper um, right when prices started to just go sky high on mm -hmm. houses. And I am so glad I got the little ugly duckling house because now a year later, it looks totally different. It's a lot more satisfying than buying one that was already pretty. I am so impressed um, <laughs> because I have heard that kitchens and bathrooms are pretty much the hardest thing. If you are going to be renovating that, that those will really those yeah. will test your patience and your sanity. So the fact that you're just it doing like the whole thing, I mean, well, luckily the house that I bought, it's all original to the house. It was built in the seventies and they didn't, they never gutted anything and they took pretty good care of it. So all it's, all I'm doing is refinishing the surfaces of the cabinets, uh, taking off old stain and basically sealing it back up to its natural color and it's gorgeous. So I like dodging bullets left and right with this house. I was going to say, don't, don't minimize it here. Lots of us, I'm sure watch those like home reno shows. And we're always, I mean, I'm always like, no, why would they do that? Don't they mm -hmm. know that it would look better with this like matted fin? You know, I always have yeah. some opinions, but to actually do it, I think it's I intimidating. <laughs> it's intimidating. It's taken me a year. It's taken me a year okay. for a reason because I, I haven't rushed anything. And I also know my limits. If I like, I contracted out like the siding and gutters and all this decks for the house. Like I, I paid somebody else to do all that, but they let me pick out colors and whatnot. And I actually made it look really pretty. I, I salute you for so many reasons. <laughs> well, it's been really great talking with you. And I, I think it, it's just so interesting. We've had some really, really good guests on this podcast this season that we we just started. We've just um, started recording some new ones and uh, you and the others. I, I could just talk to you all day. I, I think you have so many interesting things. You've done so much. And I mean, we could go down so many different trails, whether it's talking about uh, game animals or whether it's talking <laughs> about classic cars. Or transport of patients or biocontainment. Um, just very interesting. And I think it's really cool to highlight 
some of the awesome nurses out there that are doing some really incredible things. And you certainly are one of those. So thank you for, for being on this podcast. Thank you for sharing with us. And um, I, I just, I, I'm very appreciative of you taking the time to to talk to us and, and share your expertise and your knowledge with our listeners. Well, sure. I want to take this time to thank Major Tiffany Welsh for joining us for this episode of BCN and Friends. Thank you, Major Welsh, for sharing your time, your knowledge, experience, and your passion with us. And to all of our listeners, we hope you will stay tuned as we continue on with BCN and Friends and bring you new and meaningful content and perspectives. If you have a suggestion for an episode, please email us at bcn at bcn.org. I am Holly Briggs here with Michael Dexter and on behalf of the entire BCN team, we thank and celebrate you for all that you're doing as professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. Until next time, and we are out.